We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview as usual, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Kim Sorrell, a longtime entrepreneur, director of the humanitarian organization Rays of Hope for Haiti, and an author. Kim's first and second book were written in wake of a tragedy. In this podcast, Kim opens up about her experience with her husband being diagnosed with cancer, followed by her husband's death just six weeks later. Married out of high school, Kim built a life and family with her husband by her side. To cope with the experiences and grief, Kim wrote and shared her writings by email. That resulted in her first book, Cry Until You Laugh. Her second book, Love Is draws on Kim's experience of not only losing her husband, but also her humanitarian work in Haiti after its disastrous earthquake. It was written in response to her search for the real meaning of love, using the famous biblical verse from 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 that starts, Love is patient, love is kind, as a guidepost. While there's no magic answer for getting over the devastating loss of someone you love, Kim offers some good insights into how she has coped with grief, including deciding to choose the things you can control and being of service, which gives her purpose. Now, let's get better together. Kim Sorrell, welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to this and so happy that you invited me. Well, thank you for coming. I think you are the first person in 2023 I've actually interviewed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes scheduling gets all weird and whatever, but you are a award-winning author and speaker. Your latest book is called Love Is, which I'm so fascinated to talk about, especially 
you know, we share a lot of common things and which is fascinating. Anytime I meet someone that's got the same lived experience, as they say, I love to talk. So we'll get all into that, you know, as we go on. But like I always like to say, uh, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? All right. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, I, I uh, was never going to get married, never have kids. And that was my plan in high school. I was going to be the first woman president. And uh, when I was and I was 17 years old and I knew that if I ever did get married, he had to have two things. He had to be over six foot tall because my five foot nothing mom married a short man. So I needed somebody tall to give my kids a fighting chance. And he had to be good looking so he could look good in my wedding pictures. And so at the very mature age of 17, this tall, dark, handsome man walked into the room, May of my senior year of high school. Ten days later, I asked him to marry me. And he said, yes. And less than a year later, we got married. And uh, I started my first business right out of high school. He was doing his thing and I was doing mine. We ended up in business together down the road. And um, yeah, so kids, grandkids, all of that stuff. and. Lots of businesses along the way, some that I had from the beginning and uh, some that I started and sold and whatever. And then a few years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And which is, you know, anytime you hear that word, it kind of smacks you in the face, as you know. And uh, four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he passed away six weeks after that. And so, uh, it was a crazy time, crazy, crazy time and a whole new life. You know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. You know, we were going to be that old couple rocking, drinking lemonade on the front porch, smiling at each other at 95 years old or whatever 95 year old people do on the porch. And uh, all of a sudden that was gone. I was in my 40s and that was gone. And so I had to sort of look at my whole life. And one thing that it made me do is question the true meaning of love. And so I decided I would dedicate a year to figuring it out because it seems like nobody else has. And so uh, most of the year I spent in Haiti and the things that I found out about love rocked my world, changed my life. I believe would change anybody's life. And um, so that is how love is came to be. And so I'm just passionate about spreading the word. And that's what I'm doing now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how life just like, I can't even explain it. Um, I mean, everyone knows that's listened to the show that my wife Jane died five and a half years ago from leukemia. And it was one of those things where you just, when you hear the C word, I mean, I wasn't even going through it and it just sucker punch. I, I couldn't even fathom what it would be like to actually be the person going through it. Um, I, I mean, a little bit, I mean, you know, Jane and I would talk about it, but there's nothing like having to go through it. And then the double whammy of your husband dies while you have to go through this, which talk about a double kick to the punch, you know, double sucker punch, right? Mm -hmm. um, just and having kids on top of that. I mean, what, how did you get through it? <laughs> well, <laughs> great question. Cause now, I, I mean, here. I'm sure we could talk all day about that, but I'm, you know, I just, 
yeah, I get emotional about it. As I'm sure you do too, talking about some of the things, but it's just, I just am always so impressed when people can make it through something so absolutely horrible. Yeah. Still, like write about it and, and enjoy, you know, enjoy life again. So yeah. Let, how'd you get through that? Right. I hear you. I mean, you know, it was so strange and I knew nobody who both had cancer at the same time, let alone, you know, both had cancer and one person passed away. And like, I, you know, knew other people in the world, but not this scenario. So I, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, flying by the seat of my pants, getting through it. And, um, but one thing that I realized is there are things that you have zero control over in life. Like, you know, cancer, I don't think that, you know, God is up in heaven and smites people, you know, like, oh my gosh, you stole a pack of gum when you were in seventh grade and you were going to get cancer when you're 40 years old, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't think that happens. I mean, cancer is so random, right? It can affect anybody comes out of the blue. And, and so, uh, though I would never choose cancer. I would never choose to lose my husband. I wouldn't make those choices, but there are things that I do control. There are choices that I control and I control my level of happiness. I control, I choose joy. I choose to uh, be as happy and productive as I can in life, knowing I can't have my husband back. And the best way I can honor him is to not live in the sorrow, but to live in the joy. And so uh, that, that's been a big thing for me is, is just knowing, knowing that I have the choice. Yeah. Honor him to live in the joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard sometimes though. It is. It is. I started writing uh, right when I was diagnosed. First thing I did after I got the telephone call and cried and telephone call on a Friday afternoon, you know, it wasn't like a lifetime movie that we expect to be at the doctor's office and the two of you huddled together across from his desk and he delivers the news and gives you information. It was a Friday afternoon phone call when I couldn't even call back and ask a question. And I went to the bookstore on Saturday morning and everything was either depressing or real medical. And I thought, well, I want to know what it feels like. You know, I want to know, are there choices? I want to know what, what it's really like. And so I started writing, uh, which was very therapeutic. It was great for me to write, but I would send out my writing an email. And before I knew it, 5,000 people were reading what I was writing. And so I continued to write when my husband was diagnosed and then through losing him, I continued to write for just over a year. And that is my first book. Cry until you laugh because you need to. There, of course, you're going to cry. Of course, of course, there are moments I still cry, right? And uh, that's okay. That's that's part of the healing. That's that's all right because it just means you love deeply. And when you love deeply, you lose deeply, and you miss deeply. And so crying, crying is okay. But I think sometimes people need permission to laugh again. And, and cause it's easy to stay in the sorrow. It's easy to hang out there in the grief and, uh, and, and almost feel like it's dishonoring to laugh again. 
dishonoring to go and have this life that, that they no longer can have. And I just believe the opposite is true. You know, it, you have permission to come out of the grief. You have permission to laugh. Don't worry what people think or say. You have permission to live a great yeah. life. Yeah. Did, did you and his name was, what was his name again? Steve. Steve, right. Did, did you and Steve talk about that as, as, you know, he was going through his journey or was it? You know, uh, we fast? really didn't. We were told that he probably had a year because he was young and healthy. And, you know, even though it's pancreatic cancer, which is a horrible diagnosis, they figured he'd have about a year. So in six weeks time, that was way too quick. And so unexpected that it was that short. Like I believe in, in uh, a higher power. I believe in God. And our prayer from the beginning was either give them a healing, you know, like you did the lame and the blind or the ultimate healing of heaven, but please don't let him suffer. And we had this great six weeks together watching cash cab and playing gin rummy, you know, whatever, just hanging out and being together. And uh, he woke up on a on a Sunday morning and we had great hospice. His pain was well managed and everything was great, but we woke up on this Sunday morning and he was in pain. So I quickly called the hospice nurse and, and it seemed like she was there in seconds. The hospice was so great. And uh, he was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was holding him from behind because I didn't want him to fall off the bed, but it hurt him to lay down. And she was on the phone in our bedroom calling for a hospital bed. We had no equipment. You know, we were just living life and uh, commode or, you know, whatever she was calling for. And I'm saying, do I call my kids? You know, what do I do? And she's, no, no, no. you got lots of time, you know, weeks, if not months, you know, you've got lots of time. Don't worry. Don't worry. And, but as I was holding him, I could feel his misery. I could just feel his pain. And I just, I whispered in his ear and I just said, baby, just go. And he never took another breath. That was it. Wow. Mm -hmm. Which I consider very merciful because he didn't suffer. I mean, it was an answer to our prayer and uh, some people linger. I mean, you know what it's like, it's, it's hard. It's hard at the end. And um, the end was, expected but unexpected you know the timing of it certainly unexpected but uh he was out of misery which um you know sad for me but really happy for him yeah um yeah jane jane battled it for 15 months mm. and uh it's so funny because we had a lot of time to talk about it and um yeah, she wanted me to be happy and find love again. And, you know, we had fights over it. It was kind of funny. You know, there's a there's a scene in the book that's coming out in September about what it was like to have those conversations. But, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the week before she died, I didn't think she was going to die. I mean, I was literally in, de- I wouldn't say denial, but, boy, it was pretty tough, you know. We're like, oh, no, we'll make it. We'll do this. We'll do that. But then, you know as leukemia goes, when you, you kind of go down the path and then the path gets harder. And then all of a sudden last week of her life, I mean, it was just, it, it, you know, she was, she wasn't suffering so much, but you know, to your point, it's like, 
I actually at one point felt bad. I was relieved mm-hmm. that she, she, um, she ended up dying, but, um, wow. Now you then have to deal with your own breast cancer and then your kids. Mm-hmm. And how do you just even start dealing with that? I mean, you know, life throws a lot of stuff at you, but uh, usually it's like one at a time. <laughs> let's, just, like, let's just pepper everything that we can at Kim and make sure that Kim is really, you know, we're going to test you to a point where, you know. Make it or break it, kind of. Yeah. 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 Break, which she didn't. I mean, and again, I think you probably had the same experience I had where there are just days where you just don't want this to be your life anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. For sure. For so, sure. And not that you'd wish it on anybody else, no. but you no. wouldn't wish it on yourself either. No. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what were some of those things that, um, well, you know, I, I think part of it was the distraction of me still having to deal with my stuff. Um, that I, I think uh, grief took a little bit of a backseat in a way and wanting to be strong for my kids. Uh, I think he had something to do with it as well on how I stayed sane and, you know, didn't just run away. Uh, But um, one of the biggest things, well, two big things. One is good things can come out of really crappy things. You know, and so looking for those silver linings, looking for those things or creating those things, you know, I mean, you're not going to say, I'm sure that Jane's leukemia, there was anything good about that. Like there's nothing good about it, but little things can happen along the way that are good or the way you can relate to me and I can relate to you way different than somebody who's never lost their spouse. So that's a good thing. You know, there's, there are some good things that can come out of it. And one of the good things that came out of it for me was my youngest was getting his undergrad at the time. And he was thinking something medical, not sure. And he changed course after us both being diagnosed with cancer. And he decided to get his PhD and be a cancer researcher. And so he's Dr. Noah now, I call him Boo Boo Kitty, Dr. Boo Boo Kitty, and um, does research. And he's found some incredible things and I, he's amazing. And so that's something really good that came out of it. When I was ready to go back to work, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was going to go back into my businesses. I was also running a nonprofit, but I resigned from that because of the cancer. So I wasn't sure. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to breathe a little bit and take it slow. And so I uh, took a position uh, unpaid a volunteer position as a, a bookkeeper for a small nonprofit that my father and I had started 10 years before and had a, you know, some guy running it. And so January 1st of that year, I started with clean books and was part-time bookkeeper as I'm figuring out life. And 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. And so my part-time job went to 24-7. And within two weeks, I was in Haiti. And for the next several years, at least part of every month, I was in Haiti. 
And I think something that you don't hear often, I'd never heard before, is what a healer services to grief. Serving others, getting out of yourself and volunteering, serving others. It's amazing how that that changes the depth of your grief. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huh, wow. Man. How did you get through it? <laughs> I drank a lot. To be honest, if you want it, want the full truth. Um which is a depressant, a so that's the yes. thing to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, I drank a lot. Um had a had hard time sleeping, so I smoked a lot of pot. Um I did that when she was diagnosed too because um, one of the things that I did was I spent the night in the hospital with her when she was in, you know, doing chemo. And uh, if you spend any time in a hospital, as you probably have, not a great healing place at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hard to sleep. Um, I mean, that's in the book, too, a little bit about, you know, some of our adventures. Um, actually, what, what, what got me through what, what got me through the tsunami of trying to figure out like how to manage all this, right. Was, um, I was an endurance athlete. I still sort of am. I'm not, not that in that, you know, not up to f- what would be fighting weight for that anymore, but physicality and physical stress and duress sharpens the mind. Like no other thing I've ever, like when you go through grueling physical circumstances, that is the crucible in which your mind gets stronger. And so I had done a lot of these knucklehead knuckle dragger things, you know, like way worse than like a tougher mutter. Like, I mean, like we're talking hard, hardcore. I had a bunch of friends that we would push each other. Right. I still talk with a lot of those friends, although I don't, I'm not as hardcore anymore into that. But I think the, to me, it was a mission you know, and I was very focused on, you know, I want to get her better. Like, how are we going to do this? And I also wrote a lot. One of the things that was challenging about that time is that everyone wanted to know how Jane was doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, well, I mean, may or may not, but, you know, as the caregiver, you're sort of, you're not really important. Like, no one, hardly everyone, hardly anyone asks you how you're doing. Or if they do, it's after how your person you're taking care of is doing, right? And I understand that, right? You know, there were very, there were few people, you know, I won't name their name, but there are a few people that would ask me, hey, how are you? And they could tell, like, there's one scene in the book, which I won't get into, but it's like when I, I lost it, I, I, I mean, I lost it, lost it. And someone was there to help me, you know, pick it up. But I think for me, it was the writing it was the physicality that I'd been, I'd been used to endurance events. So to me, this was just another endurance event. Um, Jane was just phenomenal, even though she sometimes was a pain in the butt. Um, her general attitude about it was phenomenal. I just, I hope if I'm ever in that situation, I have her same attitude. Cause I mean, <laughs> I mean, she cared about how I was doing. Even going through that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, um, 
yeah. And then we were running a business and all that, which is another level of crazy. She didn't want to, she didn't want to shut it down. She's like, it's my baby. We can't shut it down. I'm like, it's driving us crazy. So yeah. Wow. And then like going to Haiti and man, how was, how was that to see that sort of devastation and destruction? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, service allows you to heal or at least makes you a higher purpose. I, I had some of that too, but I wasn't like in a catastrophe like that, you know, like that's intense. How was that? How did, yeah. How, how did you handle that? And then what were some of the things that helped you handle that, that maybe from this horrible situation made it bearable or tall? I don't know what word to use. Yeah. Well, I, it wasn't my first time in Haiti. Um, my first time in Haiti was um, 10, 12 years before that. And I actually swore I'd never go back again. I, uh, my nonprofit, I, I work in third world countries. I work in some really tough places. Haiti is by far the toughest, you know, it's the poorest, poorest country in the Western hemisphere. It's um, the world has done a lot to hold Haiti down. It's about survival. It's not about living. It's wonderful, incredible people living under some of the worst possible circumstances. And, uh, and so that's, that was the thing is people are people all over the world. And I met and befriended so many incredible people that uh, was able to develop great relationships with people. And so uh, that's really the thing is that it's not you know, just um, uh, calling names for a telethon, you know, and not seeing the people or volunteering by putting shoes together to send to Africa, some country in Africa or, you know, whatever, which those are great things too. Those are great things too. But here I was able to develop great relationships and, uh, and get to know people and know better the culture and whatever. But the devastation was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, we lost a couple thousand people in the World Trade Center and that was a lot of people. And that was horrible, horrible. Haiti lost 200,000 people, 200,000. I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around it. But uh, when I was first there seeing people that needed surgery because something dropped on their leg and they needed an amputation and I mean, just crazy things and kids left without parents and parents left without kids and just the sorrow uh, and and the pain of everybody else, I think seeing that it was almost like being strong for my kids. Like I needed to be strong for people that I met there too, and say there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like you know, people will come and help, and let's figure out a way. And um, so I don't know how that answers your question exactly, but uh, I think that was, that was kind of it. And it's. But it is tough. Um, Haiti's hard, and uh, it's hard today. It's going through crisis after crisis, and it's crisis now. And uh, I don't know. It was, but I've got a lot of friends there, and my heart is there. Yeah, it's almost like 
I mean, I always used to say, I mean, it sounds kind of crash sometimes, but I go, it could always be worse, right? I mean, <laughs> sounds like you saw some of the always be worse in a way that almost makes what you go through, I wouldn't say smaller, but put in context, you know? I think I think that's sort of the lessons that I've learned through all this is that it could always be worse. I like your, you know, your attitude about, well, it's how I handle it. I can make my own joy. Like there's some things I can control and there's some things I can't control. Like, okay, well, you know, and then I just need to be be strong maybe is not the right word, but I mean, it's like the only one I can think of, but be strong for others to be of service. Because I think for me, the being of service thing is really powerful too. Like it could always be worse. Why are you in your own private pity party? when there's people that are suffering more than you. And look, don't get me wrong. This is not, this sucks. This is not something, like you said, you never wanted to lose your lose Steve. You never wanted breast cancer. I never wanted to lose Jane. I never wanted to do all that, right? Like that, never wish that on my worst enemy because it's so awful. But, and I love always the buts, right? Mm-hmm. It's how you handle it and it's how you show up. And it's not perfect every day. And it's sometimes challenging, but I think if you're going to be resilient, you sort of had to do what you did too, right? I mean, you know, like people rely on you, you know, it it gives you a sense of purpose. Do you think that sense of purpose was a good, like, anchor? I love, I love you. I love those words, you using those words, you know, like I never even thought of those words until today with you. But um, we all have purpose. We all have purpose. And, you know, if you think you don't, find it. Figure out what your purpose is. You know, we, we all have purpose and we're all unique. We're all uniquely gifted. We're all, you know, I think sometimes of like the Mona Lisa. If the Mona Lisa was ever to go for sale, who knows how many millions and millions of dollars, who knows how much money it would go for? Well, it's because it's one of a kind. It's this piece of art that is one of a kind, this magnificent thing that is one of a kind. Well, so are you. There is nobody who's ever been exactly like you. There never will be anybody exactly like you. You are unique. You're one of a kind. And there's a specialness to that. There's something wonderful about that. And so we all have purpose. We all don't have the same purpose. And and to find your purpose and to have a purpose, not just exist, you know, I don't know, like I go to work, come home, eat dinner, watch TV and go to work again the next day. But but do it with purpose. Do it on purpose. Right. I like no that. Matter, yeah. Do it on purpose. Yeah. Be so kind of no matter what, I mean, you might not like your job. Not everybody likes their job. But it, but it's what's bringing home money right now, and you kind of need that to eat and keep a roof over your head. And but, but you can like your job. Look at it differently. You know, look at what what's good about it, and and what kind of purpose can you fulfill at your job? You know, maybe you need to be there because you've gone through something that somebody else at work is going through, and they need you. They need you to be there. But but we all have purpose. I love that you said that. Yeah, absolutely. That's. You hit the nail on the head, right? Find your purpose, have a purpose. Yeah. I mean, and, and I know pe- people say that a lot and it sounds cliche and it's all woo woo or whatever. Um, and 
and and I see their point, but I really think where it comes from when when you talk about it, when I talk about it, it's coming from a place where, look, like the thing that got me through the hard thing, the really hard thing, the thing that hopefully I hope that you will never have to go through in your entire life. I just hope that I really do. This is how you, I got through it. This is how we got through it. This is how you got through it. And I think the power of that is not only saying that like you just did and, you know, and, and like built on that theme, but then telling the story about those experiences you went through. Cause the story is what reinforces it. And I just find that's so powerful. Cause it's like, you know, it's rare. It's rare to find people who go through challenging situations, who actually write about it, and then who talk about it in a way that's not, it's not always rainbows and unicorns, right? Like my biggest challenge with the world today is everyone wants a happy ending. And I want that too, but the world doesn't work that way. Maybe it's because I'm a Gen Xer and I get curmudgeon about it, but I love the realness and the it, – it's like 80s movies. I'm not sure. I don't know. Are you a fan of movies? Oh, yeah. I like a movie. Yeah. Um, I interviewed this guy, Chris Clues, who is an 80s trivia expert. Like, that's his job. Like, like how do you get this job? <laughs> right. <laughs> he wrote a book on what 80s movies can tell, teach you about life and business, right? And I've interviewed him. He's great, a great guy. Like, I just like – you know, he's like a year older than me, right? I'm like, God, we're just like, God, love this, right? And the thing that he says that resonates with people that aren't Gen Xers, so Gen Z and millennial, is that the 80s had movies that had real plot, real problems. They didn't always end well, but they really were like truly an emotional thing that didn't sugarcoat life. And it's like, he's like, when they come up to me and they tell me that, they say, it's so refreshing that it's real. It's what I really feel. And I love that. And I love the fact that you've you know, written books about it, that you talk about it so eloquently. I think entrepreneurs and humans in general, but I think the entrepreneur mindset is this, your mindset of resilience and of service. And I'm curious you know, you're writing books and everything. Are, are, is this your main like business? Are you, you, you mentioned you've done a bunch of other entrepreneurial things. I'm just curious. How do you bring, I mean, this is the thing I struggle with. How do I bring that feeling so that people really resonate with it? I think that's a great question. I think it's really fair. I think uh, the story, I mean, I think that that's the thing is when you tell a story, when you tell what, what you've been through, in people's mind, they're thinking, oh, you know, maybe they haven't been through that, but something about your story hits home with them. You know, there's something there that that they go, oh, yeah, and that they can relate to because it's human. You know, it's not sugarcoated, like you said. It's not rainbows and unicorns. You know, it's, you know, like one of the things that, that I learned about love, like my book isn't rain, rainbows and unicorns. I mean, I was in Haiti, first of all, for goodness sake. but also. Um, I tell the stories. I tell the real stories of what happened that brought me to realizations about love. I was chased by a motorcycle gang. I slept outside with tarantulas and snakes and 
chupacabras or whatever is lurking in the bushes of Haiti, right? I got lost on a mile high mountain. Chupacabra. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So, I mean, it's the real, the real stuff that all brought these lessons, these things that I learned about love, things that, that were not taught necessarily correctly about love. And, and the thing that I think is the biggest thing is that love is not an emotion. It's not like, fear or excitement. We don't live in fear. Like what you were just talking about. We don't, we don't live in, in an emotion, praise the Lord. Not everything's a scary movie. Right. And we also don't live in Disney world. And so, you know, I think even Cinderella probably has bad days. And so we don't live in an emotion, but we do live in love because love is walking, talking, living, giving, breathing. It's, it's, Part of who you are, it is who you are. And so the way you demonstrate love, the way you decide to live love then is your choice. And but it's good to know what it is before you know how you want to live it. But knowing that that love is the constant, love is always there, that it doesn't go away. You don't hang it up when you get to work, or you know, it doesn't go into the closet when you get home. It's, it's always there that like the love that you had with Jane, that was obviously deep and beautiful and wonderful in every way. Not that she didn't get mad at you for leaving your dirty underwear on the bathroom floor from time to time or whatever, but, oh, you know, you know, her. <laughs> but you, that, that deep love doesn't go away. You still love her. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of, of course. Of course. The deep the, the love is the thing. Love stays with you. Yeah. I mean, I have a fiance now and it was just funny because it's so fascinating because a lot of people are like, wow, like how 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 can she handle the fact that you, you know, you had a, you know, you have a late wife and everything. And it's funny because one time I asked her and she's like, "You know, Jari, it would be really weird if you didn't still love her." <laughs> Wise woman. I love I know, her already. Well, wise. Like, I mean, when you get lucky once mm-hmm. and you get lucky twice, mm-hmm. you just got to be like, okay, like whatever I have to do to earn that, which I try every day and I'm not perfect. No one is, but boy, there's just something that I need to do every day to earn that. Right. And, you know, I always like the one thing that was really fascinating is the whole, you know, the new appreciation for life and love as an example Mm-hmm. So the thing that the thing, and I'm I'm curious if this is your attitude too, because I've talked with a bunch of people around this, and it just seemed consistent. Was every day is a gift, and when I wake up in the morning, no matter how bad I feel, I'm like I have one more day, and Jane didn't have any more days. So what am I going to do today to make this day the best I can? And again, cliche about, right? Blah, 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 right? Whatever kind of eighties movie you want to talk about um, quoted, but that has given me a lot of comfort. And I'm curious if, if, if that's sort of like, you know, you know, you talk about love and this is what love is. And I, I personally think that, you know, God is love, like whatever manifestation of God you have. I mean, generally I think God is love. I think, I think you're right. It never goes away. Well, I'm just curious how, how that, like, how, how do you, how do you think about it? Yeah. I'm, I, uh, I agree with you. Um, 
it changes your perspective for sure. It changes how you look at life, how you view life. But again, you get to pick how it changes it. If it changes it for the better or the worse, but uh, it's easy to take things for granted. Like I would imagine I'm not engaged. I've dated a little, let me tell you, it is the shallowest pool in the entire world. I think (laughs) there's actually no water in the pool. I think there are three great men my age in the entire world. And and I live in Michigan. So there's one in France, there's one in Australia and the other ones in Antarctica. So chances of running into them are slim to none. So uh, dating is something I've tried and failed miserably at. So uh, um, congratulations on meeting somebody that's wonderful. Thank you. But um, I would think that a relationship you don't take your new relationship for granted as much as maybe you look back and did sometimes with Jane. Yeah, um, I try. You know, I was mar- I was actually married before Jane um, and got divorced. And that was, that was tough, really yeah, tough. Yeah, that's, that's some grief too. Yeah, yeah, a lot of grief and loss. Um, you know, I try. I don't always succeed. Um, it's tough. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of, I don't know how to put this. There's just, there's just a certain amount of appreciation. Like, you know, (laughs) people that have been married and then had bad marriages, they're like, oh my gosh, like I'd never get married again. I'm like, I liked being married. I think it's great. I don't understand. Even when I got divorced, I'm like, wow, I really missed this. You know, we were together for 18 years and some things happened and okay. I don't, you know, at the time it was horrible and was really upset and angry, but you know, I get it. Okay. I still liked being married. It was beautiful. And, 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 and I'm, you know, try to do the bet, be the better man. I mean, one of the things that, that Jane taught me and one of the things I try to live, which is again, hard to do and everything's a work in progress was just to be a better man. You know, just like, how do I be a better man? How do I be a better partner and whatever? And, you know, my fiance now has got a, a daughter and I'm like, okay, well, how do I be a better man to show her what a good man's supposed to be? And that sounds a little, I don't know, you know, if people have all these opinions about that sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm, of course, I live in San Francisco where those opinions get amplified to the point of chaos and shenanigans <laughs> and stupid stuff. But one of the things that was really like that, that hurt me was I'm like, I can't protect my wife. I feel responsible for her dying because I couldn't do my job as a husband. And again, my opinion, my feelings, you may like, you know, to disagree and whatever you can agree to disagree, but that's my, my experience, my feeling. So moving forward in life, it's like, how do I meet that obligation? And, you know, the book I'm writing that that's coming out in September is discussion a little bit of that, you know, and, I, 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 I think there's more great men out there for you. <laughs> I don't think there's only, <laughs> you know, what's funny is, uh, p- people will say to me, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe you're not remarried. I can't believe you don't have somebody. And, and, um, my response is a hundred percent of the time. Well, do you know any good men, my age, any good single men, my age? And the response back to me a hundred percent of the time is, well, uh, no. 
<laughs> so, you know, it makes I, it a little tough. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. N- nobody that I know knows the guy in France, Australia or Antarctica. So I guess that that's it. But, you know, one interesting thing uh, about love that I think is a, a great uh, takeaway uh, for people is that um, we're told some things about love that are not love, things done in the name of love, said in the name of love that are absolutely not love. But we learn love from, we learn our definition of love from our parents, our teachers, whoever has influence in your life, right? Not everything we're taught about it is accurate and true. And one of the things that we're told is that love's a two-way street, that, or you put a number to love, it's 50-50, it's 100-100, right? That's not true. Love is not a two-way street. Love's a one-way street. Love is on you, period. On you, period. The minute you give love to get love, it's no longer love. If I give you money and you give me a pair of jeans, that's a transaction. If I give you love to get love, that's a transaction. Love is not a transaction. You know, when you have a baby and you bring that baby home from the hospital, you are in total control. You decide when the baby eats, when the baby has a bath, when you put the baby in the crib, you're in total control. But then six, seven, eight months later, all of your Tupperware is all over the kitchen floor and pots and pans are banging and driving you crazy. You realize that you have lost all control and you will never get it back again. We don't control each other. We have no control over anybody but ourselves. So if you're giving love to get love, thinking that it is a two-way street or that it's 100, 100, 50, 50, whatever you want to call it, you're setting yourself up for just disappointment and heartache because you have no control over the love that comes back to you. And when you give love just to give love, because that's what love should do, it's so freeing. that It's, it's uh, the most freeing way to live is to just give love because then there's no room for condemnation and judgment. There's no room for racism, ageism, any other ism. There's, there's no room for, (laughs) I always call that. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's no room for labels. Right. You know, it's, it's accepting people for who they are. And that doesn't mean you got to like everybody. It doesn't mean you got to hang out with everybody. You know, you're going to hang out with the few people you have time for, right. That you, that are closest to you. And that's okay. I mean, that's great. Uh, but it allows other people to have their own opinion. Everybody can think the way they do. I mean, nobody's walked in your shoes. You have not walked in anybody else's shoes. And every day leads us to today. So the way we act, the way we think, the way we work, the way we whatever, it's an accumulation of every day until today. And, and it also gives people the grace to evolve. You know, so often... We think of somebody in the way they were in high school. And then we go to a class reunion and we think they're going to be the same. Well, guess what? You changed and so did they. And, and so give them some grace and let people evolve and change. And, uh, and there's no room for fixing people. You know, it's not your job. It's yeah. not your job. I mean, I was the queen of unsolicited advice. I could give you advice all day long. I knew exactly what people should do. Well, it's not my job. You know, if somebody asks me for advice, I tenderly, softly, gently, maybe will give some advice. But sometimes they don't really want advice. They just they just need to be heard. They need to be heard and vent. Yeah. No, yeah. I- yeah. 
So you know, love is a one-way street. Love is up to you, period. It's beautiful in that love has a way of coming back to you, but not always the way you think. And, and if you have great expectations, you're going to be disappointed. Just love. Just love because that's what love does. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's just a great way to, to, to think about it. And I mean, I think it's also, I mean, you know, not a huge step on the analogy front when it comes to building your own business and being your own thing. Um, because I think a lot of people tend to make it more transactional as opposed to being of service and giving what you have to offer. You know, I always think of it as, you know, I, I always like, you know, people talk about empathy and stuff like that. And, and, and I understand empathy, but I always think that in order to take action, you have to have compassion towards people. And the empathy just gets you so far because I think you just get wrapped up in your own thing as opposed to getting on to compassion so that you can take action to help or solve or whatever. And I like I like the way you set it up for the whole loves a one way street in terms of you know, as people that are trying to build something, put something in the world and you expect something back, um, that could be a recipe for disaster, obviously. Right. Um, and I think, I think the analogy still does, does hold even when it comes to product and service, you know, again, maybe there is some transactional point of it, but if you really truly believe, you know, you're the activist for what you're doing, the only thing you can do is put it out there. Like, like, an, like you writing your two books, like me writing my book, like me doing this podcast. I, I can't control how people are going to respond or whatever. I can only put it out there. And I put it out there because, I mean, and it sounds a little corny, but there is a love that I have for the entrepreneur spirit and people that are entrepreneurs and just humans in general. But, but generally, you know, I want to see them do better. And I don't know if that ha- if it happened. I mean, people may tell me, but I have, a, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's like a leap of faith to say, I'm going to put this out in the world and see what happens. And I don't expect anything back. Mm-hmm. And you know, what else it does is it means you're authentic. It mm-hmm. means you're real. And, and people can tell when you really care or you care because they have a checkbook. And you want to do business with people who really care. I think that's a great place to end. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kim, uh, for your time and the work you're doing and the books and just the thoughtfulness. Um, Really appreciate it. Really do. And everyone should go read the book for sure. And yeah, stay stay safe, stay in touch and uh, let us know how we can help. Thanks, Kim, for the uh, awe-inspiring, sometimes difficult, but uh, always enjoyable interview. Um, You know, as everyone knows, I lost uh, my wife, Jane, to leukemia almost six years ago. So uh, I understand (laughs) a little bit about uh, what Kim went through. So um, always good to hear from people that have uh, been through some tough times and can share the uh, gold, so to speak, that they found after slaying the dragon, as I like to say. So, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Kim. Kim says, you have permission to live a great life. She emphasizes that crying is a natural expression of grief, and that it's also okay to laugh too. Well, yeah, (laughs) a little bit. 
Uh, sometimes feels weird uh, to laugh and cry at the same time, but um, you know, you may not have to deal with a spouse dying uh, when you're going through your entrepreneur journey, but there will be plenty of times where you will feel overwhelmed and extremely emotional because something has hit the fan. Um, the thing to always realize is that, uh, you know, it, well, it can always get worse and it can always get better. <laughs> and uh, try to, you know, focus at the task at hand. Like, what do you got to get done in order to get through the milestone, get through the challenge, the struggle? It's uh, really important to uh, keep that perspective when you can. Getting cancer and losing a spouse are not things anyone can control. Instead, Kim focuses on what she can control and focuses on what she needs to do to be happy. So... Yes, there are things out of your control for sure, and you may have um, some challenges with that, maybe in your own little private pity party, when you say, what was me, why did this happen, how come this deal didn't go through, whatever. Um, although it is always good to figure out your role in things if you can, if there was a role, if you had a role, obviously your spouse getting cancer is you probably don't have a role in that for sure. Um, it's good to kind of stay focused on how you can deal with the situation as opposed to kind of dwelling on why you got in the situation because you're in it. That happened. Just got to move on or move through or be as diligent as you can. Being of service can be the greatest healer. It's also good for business. Um, yeah. I would say I agree 100%. I mean, I do this podcast as a way to be of service to the community. It's also something that helps me uh, talk with great entrepreneurs. But, you know, I mean, Jane was an entrepreneur, my late wife, and uh, was the inspiration for the book. I like to think a little bit of an inspiration for the podcast. Um, there's other people that were inspiring that too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, being of service people – really uh, will be drawn to that. And um, it is absolutely good for business. People want to do business with people that will help them solve a problem. Business is all about solving a problem and hopefully profitably. Sometimes not profitably, depending on your business, but um, that's the whole goal. So there you have it. Some actionable insights I learned from my sometimes difficult but enjoyable uh, interview with Kim. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.